be shy. If you brought your Bibles with you, let me encourage you to um, turn, see you, dude, uh, turn in them to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. He likes that way too much. Hebrews chapter 11. Listen, before we, um, we get going, I, can I just stop here for a moment and on behalf of Parkway family, I just want to say we are grateful to uh, any of you out there who happen to serve in law enforcement. Uh, difficult week, I know, and some of the uh, law enforcement guys I know have been on edge this week um, to know that there's a possibility of a target painted on your chest just because you have a badge or because of the color of your skin. So I just want to say uh, we, we appreciate what you do. That is the ministry of justice that the Lord has ordained. And I want to encourage you as the Parkway family to pray for those that you know uh, in our congregation, even outside. Just pray for the protection of our of our, our police officers, CHP, uh, sheriff deputies. Just keep them in your prayer. Keep their families in your prayer um, during this time where our country just seems to be ripping itself apart. Um, I know that they would appreciate it very much. In fact, why don't I just go ahead and, and pray for that and pray for our time in the Word. Gracious Father, um, you do reign supreme, and we, we take great comfort and we find um, confidence in the simple but profound truth that all authority has been handed over to Christ, and that he is good and just and righteousness, and though we don't understand uh, the times in which we live. You, you, you said before this ever happened, you said that troublesome times would come. You said that nation would rise against nation, that the love of many would grow cold and people would increase in wickedness. And Lord, we, we see it all around us. Um, but we trust that you reign. And we trust that you're going to bring all things to justice. We trust that you guard and protect your people. And so we pray, um, lift up those who serve um, to keep our place, our, our city safe. We pray for them. And we pray for your protection. We pray for courage. We pray for confidence in your sovereign power. That they would go in the freedom of knowing that you are a refuge and strength to those who trust in you. Father, I pray in this time that we have together around your word, I, I pray that it's more than just an educational lesson about what the Bible teaches. I pray more importantly that, that you build into us um, a faith in these truths, that our, our sense of conviction and assurance would be deepened, that our roots would go deep so that we would stand in the day of trouble and we wouldn't be fearful or worrisome or feel like the sky is falling. But we know, um, Lord, because of your truth, we know that... that um, that all things do work together for the good of those who trust you. So um, just take this moment we have, we commit it to you, and ask that you do what only you can do. Speak in power. Change lives. Change hearts. Strengthen and encourage in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, um, there was a time in my life where I thought that um, repetition, like doing things over and over and over again, um, was boring and monotonous. I never understood why you had to just do things over and over and over again. But as I've, as I've aged, as I've observed my own life, as I've observed the lives of those around me, as I've studied and read, I realize, I've come to realization that, that repetition is absolutely crucial to the formation of who we are as Christians. And without it, we're not formed. Like the repetition. Um, 
We don't read the Bible one time. We read the Bible repeatedly. At least we're supposed to allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And through the repeated intake of God's word and study and meditation upon God's word by faith, we find our lives are formed by the repetition of that. Uh, That we don't just pray once, we pray without ceasing. And as we pray in faith repeatedly, our lives are are formed. Uh, One of the reasons we're supposed to go to church repeatedly, we should go to church repeatedly, is so that as we gather for worship and we hear the word and we're reminded that, that there is a God who's on the throne, that through that repetition of gathering together, our lives are slowly formed or conformed into the image of Christ. That repetition is, 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 is part of um, uh, our formation, and without it, we're stunted. And um, I, I've come to embrace it as like it's something that's necessary. The rhythms and the, and the, and the um, repetitions of life are absolutely essential. But to come to that repetition uh, by way of faith... And um, so what we do, even though sometimes it feels like we see, say the same things, this, maybe in different ways, it's that repetition is absolutely necessary. How many of you have learned a spiritual lesson through only one, um, one experience? Most people are like, i got to have that, like, that, that lesson of patience driven into my heart over and over and over and over again because that's how we learn is through repetition, right? And I, you know, what comes to my mind is, is and I, I may have shared this before, one of the negative sides of being here um, almost two decades is I don't remember what I shared and what I didn't share. And, um, but there's these two verses, like my mother, who just turned 80 this last month, would quote to me all the time. And they were, they were the only two verses that she would quote to me. If I was depressed or I was worried or I was at a place of, of um, indecision, in my life, she'd always come to the same verse, and she goes, Dan, you remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I rolled my eyes like, here we go again. It's like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And about that time, I'm like, yes, yes, I got it. And I'd quote the rest of it. And acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, and he will direct your paths. Got it. You know, that was over, and that's a, this is not an overstatement. I am not exaggerating. These are the two verses she'd pull out every time. And it gave me the impression that these were the only two verses she knew in Scripture because she just quoted them over and over and over again, which wasn't the case. It's like, can't you come up with something new, fresh? There's, a, there's over a 1,000 pages in the Bible of verses. Can you find something a little more? <laughs> Those same two verses drilled into my life for which at this point in my life, I am deeply grateful. Through that repetition, it drilled into me a truth. And the truth of those two verses have been um, a matter of exploration over the years that I have lived, of recognizing that trusting in the Lord and our understanding, our ability to comprehend, get our mind around something, that sometimes our trust in the Lord and, and our ability to understand and make sense of something, sometimes those, those seem at odds. And in those times when um, you're called to trust the Lord or, uh, or lean on your own understanding, leaning is a, is a picture of faith, right? You're leaning on your, what you can comprehend or what you can think or what you can reason through. That at those times when trust in God and our understanding of things don't jive, that is, we don't understand what are you going to do? That's, that, that, is, that is the question. And the answer to that question is, is the life of Abraham that you just heard in Isaiah and what we're about to read in 
Hebrews chapter 11. If you're just with us for the first time, we've been going through the Old Testament characters in Hebrews chapter 11, just chronologically going through the great characters of faith. And we've spent already two weeks on Abraham. There's more text devoted to him in this chapter than anybody else because he is the known for his faith. And here we come to the third and final um, picture of his faith. This is, this is uh, what Hebrews 11 um, reflects on and about Genesis 22, which Rufus just read. You heard the story. Now here's the summary of it. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him him back. Now, all of this uh, surrounds a promise, right? Um, and I want you to... I, I, whenever you have a biblical lesson, I, I really believe it's important to tie it to the center. Uh, otherwise, it kind of dangles out there. That the whole idea of what God promised to Abraham back in the beginning of the Bible is, is at the very heart of the Bible. And in particular, how it's fulfilled and offered to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, the promises. The promises given to Abraham. He says, listen, I'm going to bless you and through your seed or through your offspring, I am going to bring my blessing to the nations, which I think is his way of saying I'm going to bring my saving grace to the nations through this line. And that's, that's the main focus of the Bible, right? Um, some people mistakenly think that the Bible is about, you know, uh, history of civilization, um, but it's not. It's, it, is a, it is a history, but it's a very focused history on um, what is God is doing to bring Humpty Dumpty back together again, which is why it doesn't answer all of our trivial questions like, this may sound stupid and corny, and, but you know, did Adam have a belly button? I don't know. You know why? Because the Bible wasn't concerned with that question. Um, where did Abel and Cain, where well, Abel died, Cain and Seth find wives? Did they marry their sisters? And if they did, does that imply that they had incest? Well, listen, the Bible's not interested in answering that question because it's not primarily concerned about giving us an exhaustive history of things. It wants to focus our attention on how God is going to, through the line of Adam going to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way up to Jesus, how he is going to bring about the blessing, his salvation to the nations. That's, that's the centerpiece, okay? Just the, everything I say has to be lined up with that. But in this point in history that this describes... I want you to think about this for a second. Isaac is the singular child through which that promise would come, the blessing would come, right? Which means, think about it this way, the entirety of God's big, huge, massive, unfolding, saving work at this time in history hinges on Isaac staying alive and having children. We repeat that because you're not going to understand the test unless you understand that. At this point in history, all of God's massive work of love to, to restore, to forgive, to reconcile, to bring life out of death, all of it hinges on Isaac living and having children. Why? Because God, by name, says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not a cousin, not a, not a distant relative, uh, not another son by a slave wife. It's Isaac. Everything hinges on him. He must live for this promise to go forward. Now, with that in mind, we better understand the test. That God brings a test 
into Abraham's life. Um, and it is, it is, I think of this as an ultimate test of faith. As you heard, read in Genesis 22, God says, listen, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son of promise, the, the son through whom I will bless the nations eventually, um, and I want you to take him up and I want you to slaughter him. That's, that's God's command to him. Now, let's put aside the ethical question of human sacrifice for a second. And let me just, I want you to feel this, and I want you to think about this. So I want you to follow me in this, that what I'm about to say. That this is going to challenge Abraham in different ways. Um, it is going to challenge him as a father. It's going to challenge him in terms of his understanding and reason, and it's going to challenge him in terms of his experience. In terms of being a father, the text itself refers to Isaac as your only son. That is your treasured um, apple of your eye, jewel of your heart, son. Um, at this point, Abraham was 100 years old when he finally had this child with his wife, Sarah. He'd been waiting a whole long time for this kid. And, and, and guys, fathers in particular, they are designed, they are hardwired by God to be protectors. Protectors of their children, lovers of their children. We have affections for our children where you get close to my kid. Listen, there's going to be, there's going to be this protective aspect of who I am that you don't want to see come out. You know what I'm saying? That's how God made us. And what he's being asked to do here, and by the way, I, some of us probably have known people who have lost children. I have a close personal family friend who he lost a 16-year-old boy to a drunk driving accident. And you know what? The man he is today is not the same man he was before he lost his son. Like losing children wrecks people, right? It wrecks people. And here, Abraham is being asked not only to forfeit the life of his son, but to go against his fatherly instinct and affection to actually actively take the life of his son. To deny that protective aspect, to deny his what love naturally does, and do the opposite. Now, I don't know about you, but I put myself in this position. That is, that is a, a crucible. That is, am I going to trust the Lord? Am I going to be loyal to the Lord? Or am I going to be loyal to my family line, to my son, to my family? God, my son, God family. I don't care what you say. That is a tough place to be. But then there, in addition to that challenge to his own fatherly affection, um, there is a challenge intellectually too. Follow me on this. The child of promise is Isaac. In order for him to be the conduit of blessing, he has to live and he has to have kids. And now God commands his death. Whichever way you slice it, those two things seem to be massively contradictory. The promise requires life. Command requires death. Promise requires the life of Isaac. And the command requires death. How does that jive? Right? How can you promise and then command his death? There's, there's no way of getting your head around that. It's like making sense of it, trying to figure out, like, God, what are you doing? This doesn't jive with my brain cells. What do you do? It's another, it's a, again, another 
a crucible, a place of intense testing. Um, am I going to trust that somehow God's promise and command can be resolved? I don't know how. Or am I going to lean on my own understanding? Am I, going to, am I going to root myself in my ability to think and judge and reason correctly? Which, trust the Lord or trust my intelligence or my understanding? So that's two layers, right, of this test. Um, this, this whole scenario challenges him at his level of being a father, his affections, and it challenges him at a level of his intellect and understanding. But then it also challenges him at an exper- experiential level. <laughs> Through all of human history, no matter where you look, wherever there is life, once it dies, it never comes back. Animal kingdom, giraffes, hippos, aardvarks, baboons, rats, guinea pigs, insect world, bees, bumblebees, plant life, your geraniums and your daffodils and your pansies and and trees of redwoods and oaks and willow trees. Everything living comprehensively and universally, once it dies, the collective truth is that it never comes back. Nothing comes back from the dead. That's the human experience. So he knew, like once, once Isaac dies, the collective human experience says, He's not coming back. No one ever has. No plant has ever come back from death. Nothing. So you, you, you put those together and you realize this is like this, this is a massive test of faith. It challenges him at the level of being a father and his affection and his love. It challenges him intellectually. I can't understand how this is going to happen. And it goes against human experience. Everything around me says he's going to die and never come back. So you've got to trust the Lord in this test. That's hard. He's in a pickle. That's, right? He's in a pickle. Listen, church, um, Parkway, put your name in here. John, Bill, Dave. The Lord brings tests into your life, too. I know this because 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says he does. That is, God brings things into your life, um, that is going to test who are you going to trust. Are you going to trust the Lord? Or are you going to trust your understanding? Are you going to put your trust in the collective human experience? Or are you going to put your trust in family? Or let's, let's, let's be a little more concrete. When God allows evil to touch your life, and I know there are people in here who can say, that's me. And it deeply wounded or hurt you. Um, evil has touched your life. And God allows evil to touch the life of his people. God allowed evil to touch the life of his own perfect son who didn't deserve it. God does allow injustice to be committed against his people. And when that happens, and you find your soul trembling, and you find yourself doubting because the pain is intense or the evil is so horrible to you, 
you find yourself tempted to believe that God is not good, otherwise this wouldn't be happening to me. I can't understand how a good God can allow this to take place to me, my children, my wife, my family, or this country. At that moment, you have a choice to make. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your ability to judge God based upon your very limited understanding of life that somehow, based upon the very small, finite understanding that you have, that you can actually come to a a proper conclusion that God is not good because, because only this do you see? Or are you going to say, no, you know, I know whom I have believed. And I believe his promise. I believe his word to me is true. That he does work all things. All things means all things. Which includes evil. And I don't mean to imply at all whatsoever that evil is not evil or to diminish the horror of evil. Evil is evil and it will be punished. But that does not negate the fact that God has promised that he will work all those things by the wisdom and power of his wonders to the good of his people who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's a, that's, a, that's, that's a choice of who you trust. You're going to trust your understanding? Or are you going to, I'm going to trust that the Lord is good. That's kind of what Adam said earlier. I'm going to trust regardless of the circumstances. I'm just going to have to trust him at his word. You find yourself feeling lonely. Operative word, feel. You're feeling lonely. And because of that, you feel. You don't have a companion. You don't have a soulmate, and because of that, you feel like maybe God has rejected you or he's not with you anymore. In those moments, you have a, have a, I have a choice to make. Who do, I, do I trust how I feel? Or am I going to trust God's promise as Abraham did when Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am before you, behind you, to your left, to your right, over, under. I am with you. Do you trust it? Do I trust how I feel, or do I trust what he promises? Or here's one. Here's it for you guys out there. And I realized in first service I didn't say this very well. When you know the Lord wants you to do one thing, and what I I mean by that is what the Scripture clearly reveals, not some subjective leading. When you know what you should do, and your wife wants you to do something different, whose voice are you going to listen to? And I'm not talking about, like, divorce. God's will for you is to stay in your marriage. I'm talking about those day-to-day choices where you have to decide, am I going to do what the Lord really wants me to do when my wife is influencing me in a different direction? And it could go vice versa. It would be a husband or a wife. You know, we joke sometimes about, and it's kind of a... It's funny, but it's not funny at the same time. It's like, yes, the man is the head, and the woman is the neck, right? My big fat Greek wedding. And she can turn the head wherever she wants. And us married guys, 
we know that our wives influence us probably more than anybody else. I know mine does. She has tremendous influence in my life. And our wives have influence, your wives have influence in your life. And that's not a bad thing. But what happens when she wants to influence you in a direction that you know, this is not what the Bible tells me I'm supposed to do. Are you going to let her neck move the head? Or are you going to say, listen, sweetheart, I love you, but I love Christ more, and, and I have to follow him. That's a choice. Who am I going to trust? Where do my loyalties lie? With the Lord or with, with family? That's, or just stuff you just don't understand, an untimely death, or you get penalized for doing the right thing, and you don't understand it. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust that the Lord is good, that he has this, or are you going to trust your own understanding? That's just a powerful, uh, a powerful example that uh, Abraham gives to us. It's like because at the end of the day, what he said, despite the fact that it challenged him as a father, it challenged him in his understanding, it challenged him on an experiential lef- level, basically at the end of the day it was like, listen, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. Church, are, are you all in? Are, are you all, thank you. Like, when it comes right down to it, are you all in? And you might say, again, I, I, I'm, I'm not like Abraham. I don't have that kind of faith. To which I think the Bible would say, listen, if you have the spirit of Almighty God in you, you've been born again, then you have the capacity, God-given gracious capacity, to be all in. And he never brings anything into our life that we cannot handle. That's what the scripture says. He gives us the grace to handle it. He gives us the grace to be all in in that moment, whatever that test might be. And to encourage you, let me just, um, let me conclude with two um, lessons of faith. Just call them lessons of faith from Abraham that I, that I hope uh, will encourage you. One of the things that I see in Abraham's life that I think translates to us is that faith grows as we obey Christians don't really, I don't even know if people in our culture like the word obey. Um, But to the person who knows how much God loves us, um, our response of obedience is a loving response. I I want to because you love me this much, therefore I love you and I want to obey you. Sometimes Christians get jittery when we talk about obedience because um, we start to think, well, you're teaching that I'm going to be saved by my obedience. And that, of course, is not the case, right? You have faith and obedience. Um, the Bible has a whole lot to say about obedience, submitting your life to the word of God. They are not the same thing, but they are inseparable. They are not the same thing. We are not saved on the basis, I should repeat or rewind, we are not justified on the basis of our obedience. We're justified on the basis of the fact that we trust that Christ did it for us. But out of that faith comes obedience, which is the fruit. This is the cause, God's grace working through our faith. And the effect is that our lives become increasingly more obedient, conform to the life of Christ. So while they're not the same thing, they are inseparable. Where there is no obedience, there's no faith. That's what James argues. It's dead unless faith has these outworking of obedience. And that's... It's like at each point, I want you to see in, in, in uh, Abraham's life, at each point, he, his, I think his faith grows. 
because we've seen so far three snapshots of how he exercised his faith over the past few weeks. The first instance, you remember God says, listen, you're in Ur of the Chaldeans, leave home, come to a place that I will show you. And what does he do? He acts, he obeys, he submits in faith, packs his bags, packs his family, and they leave. That was the first instance, if you will, of faith obedience that we have recorded in chapter 11. But, but compared to offering your son, that's, that's small, right? I mean, to pack your bags and leave one place to go to another, even though you don't know where you're going, that, that, that's one act of faith. But he, he obeyed, and God met him there and, and sustained him. The second, if you will, picture of faith is, is more intense God comes and says, listen, you're almost 100 years old, and you and Sarah, who's 90, are going to have a baby. Are you kidding me? My wife is nine decades old. 90-year-old people do not get pregnant, and I'm 100 years old. Now we're at the edge of the supernatural. This just doesn't happen. The first act of faith, just leave home. Second act of faith is like, I've got a, I, I'm being asked to believe that she's going to have a baby. <laughs> but he believes. God shows up. Next thing you know, he's passing out cigars. Baby boy. Isaac's born. Seriously. And that faith that obeys is, grows in its assurance. Like, God can do these things. You see, it's going from leave home. You're going to have a baby at 100 years old. And then is the coup de gras. There's the big one. Now, and do you see how it's, as he's obeyed, he's grown more confident in his faith. Now he's asked, um, go ahead and offer the life of your son through whom I'm going to bring blessing. And he doesn't understand it, goes against everything, and he's able to say, I've, you've been faithful all the way along. You've met me every time. I trust you. You see, that's faith grows as you obey. Um, I probably used this before, but it just the picture is good. You know, I, I don't I don't repel anymore. Um, it, it scares me. You know, repel off a rock like they do. You know, with the ropes, and because every time I, I get ready to tip out over the edge, I'm always questioning everything that I've done. Are all my anchors secure? Is that anchor going to move or not move? Are my carabiners? Are, are, are they good? Are they in good condition? Um, uh, is my harness good? Is my rope old? Has it been around gasoline or any kind of corrosive material? Um, and all of these things go through my mind as I fearfully lean out, right? It's the worst part, leaning out over the edge. You question everything. But there is this magical moment, right, when weight goes off your legs and onto the rope. And when that happens... Fear goes away, and there's confidence, and then it's all fun, right? Zip down the, the rock. Listen, sometimes, you know, you like to play it safe in your life. God brings a test, and you want to stand on your own two feet, and he's saying, you need to lean over the edge. And when you lean over the edge, even though you're afraid to, you're going to find that I'm there, and I bear the weight, and I will support you in your act of obedience faith. And then, and then you lean back and you're like, he was there. He can support the weight. That's how um, when we follow the Lord, when we obey the Lord 
in faith, it actually increases our faith. Most of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, one, of, one of my favorites. Um, pastor, theologian during World War II in um, Nazi Germany. And, uh, and he looked around at the German church, and he saw them reciting their creeds. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. He saw them and listened to them confess their confessions and sing the songs of faith. But for the large majority of German Christians, he saw absolutely nothing come from it. No one cared. And out of that, he wrote this rather scathing, pointed, in, in my case, life-changing book called The Cost of Discipleship. Say, listen, if there is faith but no obedience, there's no faith. And all you have is uh, cheap, cheap grace. Which is why he wrote this, where he uh, informs us sometimes in order for faith to grow, you have to act first. And then faith will follow. He says, if you believe, take the first step. It leads to Christ. If you don't believe, take the first step all the same, for you are bidden or commanded to take it. No one wants to know about your faith or unbelief. Your orders are to perform the act of obedience on the spot. Then you will find yourself in a situation where faith becomes possible, like leaning out on the rope, and where faith exists in the true sense of the word. Sometimes you have to take the step first. Some in here need to take a step first. You know what the Lord wants you to do, but for whatever reason, you're not willing to lean over the edge. Or you're not willing to take that first step, trusting you know God's going to be there. He's got you. But point being, faith grows as you, as you follow the Lord, as you obey. And the second, last one is, that we learn from him is this. Is that faith anchors itself in the power of God to do the impossible. That is, at the end of the day, we believe God does things that defy human experience. In, in particular, that he can raise the dead. That's the, the conclusion. He considered, that is, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Ultimately, the resolution, right? The promise requires him to live, but your command tells me to kill him. The only resolution at the end of the day is, is resurrection, that God has the power to do the impossible and has called the dead to life. As he had faith that God could do the impossible. In his love, he could do anything for his people. And that's, that's where our faith is, is anchored. So we, 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 live in, we, we trust in an almighty God, a God who does the impossible, a God who raises the dead, the, the one who does what human collective universal experience says is can't happen. And that, of course, leads us right to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? And that's kind of where this whole chapter leans is that at the end of the day, the big resolution is, is, is the resurrection itself. There's no other way that Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or you and me, can inherit what God has promised apart from that. The belief that the day is coming when the Lord will command, a trumpet will sound, and he will command the dead to rise, and Abraham will rise, Isaac will rise, you will rise, I will rise, to experience in all of its fullness the inheritance. We will inherit God himself, we will inherit each other, and we will inherit a home. 
And that is ultimately where our faith is anchored, is God is going to make this happen. Which is why we can live with that, um, live out that quote that Jim Elliott made years ago that is uh, now proverbial, where he said, he is no fool um, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Church, at the end of the day, we get it all back in the end and more. We get it all back in the end and more, which allows you to be freer with this life. The church, who are you going to trust? That, that really is the pressing question. It's not who's going to be elected. <laughs> I know some of you are worried about that. It's not even about moral situations that are going on. At the end of the day for the church, it comes down to this simple question. Who do you trust? Do you trust your head, your understanding? Do you trust human experience? Do you, are you more loyal to your family? Or do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? Not leaning on your understanding. I pray the answer is yes. And if, if you're a person who has something you're struggling with that God has brought into your life, a test. Some of you are in a time of testing right now. Now is the time, this morning, to, to say to the Lord, listen, this is hard. I'm struggling. I know you're gracious, but I want to trust you with my whole heart and not how I think or perceive. I want to trust you. May this morning be that time of, of your enabling uh, ability to just let God have it and trust him with it. Amen. For those in that situation, Father, here in this room, and for those who will experience it at some point, we pray for grace. And we pray that this morning would be a time of lifting the burden. We don't have to figure things out. We don't have to know the answer to the question, how or why. At the end of the day, Lord, we just have to simply hear your voice say, trust me, I got this covered. And I pray that you grant us the, the freedom to be able to lift it into your hands and know that you have it covered. In Christ's name, amen.